0: God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us amid all the changing words of our generation. Speak your eternal word, we play, pray now, because it, it never changes. And then make us respond to your gracious promises, Lord, with faithful and obedient lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now today's scripture passage comes from the book of Hebrews, a letter to the Hebrews. And as you find that in your personal Bible or on your devices, uh, I just want to kind of preface it by saying the letter to the Hebrews was written to the Jews. Now, you might have gathered that, obviously, but, but um, it will help as we move forward in, in this particular study to understand that, that the Hebrews are the Jews. These are the Jewish believers and Jewish non-believers. And so the premise of the book of Hebrews is basically to demonstrate to people of the Old Covenant how the Old Covenant was fulfilled and replaced or, or enhanced, you might say, with a new covenant through Christ. And the author in particular wants them to understand that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all their expectations. And so that that will help to set the stage. There are many people who are convinced that this is actually another letter by Paul, the apostle, and there's certainly reason to believe that since there's a lot of language that's very familiar and reminds us much of of how Paul writes. But we're going to turn now to Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to start at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priests enter the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by by sacrificing himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are already waiting for him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this is the first in a new series called Adventus. Adventus is just the Latin version of the word Advent that we're pretty familiar with, most of us. And as I've stated in in last week's sort of uh, indication about the new series, I, I told you, you know, that, that Advent has been uh, kind of corrupted into an anticipation of Christmas. And it's a, it's a way for us to count down the days to Christmas and all of that. And, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that in itself. But if we want to embrace the tradition of the early disciples, what we recognize is that Advent was a season, which by the way, used to be about six or seven weeks long and was intended to point to the future, not the past. In fact, the word Advent means a anticipation of a future event. The advent of something is the coming of something. And so Advent, by its own definition isn't an anticipation of something that's already happened that we're just commemorating at christmas time but rather it is a time of anticipating something that hasn't happened yet now the way the early christians would have interpreted this was is let's celebrate all of the prophetic statements that christ has fulfilled because that's what they would do in order to Uh, As they gathered in order to recognize that because everything that was prophesied about Christ was fulfilled in Christ Then we can agree that those things that are yet to be fulfilled in Christ will be fulfilled in Christ That's what Advent is about. It's about waiting for those remaining prophecies to be fulfilled Now the word prophecies gosh I'm just, I read too much, you know, and, and I get too much information. So I know that, that, that for some people, even words like prophecy start sounding a little silly. And, and, and yet what we're really saying is, is that we've been told what the timeline is. We've been told what signs and signals to look for. And we've been told that we will understand everything that is coming by virtue of how we've learned and incorporated what we've learned by everything that already has happened. Now that's a better way to look at prophecy. Prophecy is not a prediction. It's not what you see on the tabloids at the checkout. It's nothing like that at all. Prophecy is someone who loves us, telling us what to look for to know that we're getting closer to home. And so, if you invite me to come and visit your home, and I've never been there before, you might say, "Now you'll know you're getting close because you'll be able to see this," and you'll know you're almost there when you smell that. <laughs> right? Some people can say that, and uh, you know, if you live by the creosote plant, you know, or if you live by the chicken farm or the or the turkey farm, you know, and and these are all things that you can look at as indications that you're moving closer to the goal. And so this is what the prophets of the Bible are doing. They're wanting us to know God is using them to communicate to us what we need to know in order to be prepared to to recognize. And before we're done this morning, I think you'll have a much better understanding of what this is all about and why the second coming of Jesus is not something to dread. Far from it. Now, you know, among Christians, there's a general belief in the second coming, right? Most people who would say they're Christians would say that they know Jesus is coming again. But there are so many variations about this this idea. And really, many, if not all, Christian ideas have, have been distorted. Uh, but, but if you go back to just creedal Christianity, in other words, if, if you're people of the Apostles Creed or the Nicene Creed and, and you have these general beliefs in common, then, then you understand that Jesus is coming to judge the quick and the dead. And by quick, we don't mean people who are fast. We mean the living and the dead. So quick in this case is just an old word from a former time. But Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And so we affirm that every time we say the Apostles' Creed. And yet, for a lot of people, this is really an abstract notion. It's just something they think will happen someday, but they really don't live as though it might happen now or that it might happen within your lifetime. And by contrast, you have people who are so obsessed with the second coming that they're not living their lives because they keep spending so much time looking for the signs that they've been told to look for and looking to the heavens, you know, watching for the return of Christ. And and these are extreme points of view. This is another point of view that says that, uh, you know, the fulfillment of Christ's second coming is the church, the body of Christ That he's not gonna literally come back. It's the body of Christ that is the second coming of Jesus. Well, this is not theologically sound, but people believe these things. And the truth is, is everything I've described in the extremes and all that falls in the middle is informed principally by scripture, but an awful lot of us have a a kind of mythology about the second coming of Christ. And that mythology can be really dangerous when it's more rooted in tradition, popular culture, and maybe your sources of information, and you have a certain loyalty to that source of information. You know, you really love a certain preacher, and that preacher's always talking about this, so whatever he says must be true. And as you know, I'm really into critical thinking, and I always encourage you to study and test what I tell you so that you can either believe it and trust what I say or not, but not based on how you feel about me, but based on facts and based on what can be known. And so what we're talking about with the second coming of Christ in this series is probably going to be a bit of a disappointment to some of the people who are are looking forward to this because they might be thinking that I'm going to talk about signs and signals. That I might spend a lot of time trying to show you who the Antichrist is, or whether we're at the beginning of the first half of the tribulation, or if we're in the middle of the tribulation, and what you're gonna find, especially if you're part of my Wednesday night Bible study, is, is that I don't read this stuff that way. I don't read it that way. Now, don't be afraid if you're thinking that I'm like some kind of radical heretic. No, I'm just saying I prefer to trust the scripture. And I believe the Bible is, in, it is sufficient in and of itself to be our primary source of understanding. And so I tend to read the Bible and assume that it says what it means, and it means what it says. And that if I have doubts about what I am reading, I can always look to some other place in the Bible to get interpretation that fulfills my need. And then with prayer and primarily with the help of the Holy Spirit, I can know and understand what I need to know and understand. So no, I'm not going to talk about the rapture per se. I'm not going to talk about the social and global events that lead up to the second coming. I really won't be talking about that much. And if that's what you were looking forward to, there are plenty of people on YouTube who have much larger viewership than I do who will be more than happy to fuel your need for that sort of information. But that's not where I'm going to go with this. What I want to tell you is, is that God has a plan, and it's really well interpreted throughout the letters of the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to visit his work a lot. And because Paul was given an opportunity that was unique among the apostles, and so he gets to see what God's plan is in a way that is extraordinary and is particularly visible in, say, the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to talk a lot about that. We're going to acknowledge that the second coming was on Jesus' mind all the time that he was operating within the first coming. And that he had told them to expect him to to come back, and they took him at his word. But then they didn't understand, and they didn't have two thousand years of history in their rearview mirror like we do. So there's a lot of things they didn't know and understand. But they came to know and understand, and they revealed this to us as we read through the New Testament. And this is why even the beloved John, who writes the Book of Revelation, is explaining to us how his understanding is being expanded by the revelation that Jesus shares with him. Paul had a similar revelation experience that he called his his, uh, uh, journey to the third heaven. What he was really saying was that he experienced something that was so remarkable he didn't feel like he should write it down and yet he came away with an understanding of God's purpose that we often take for granted. So. Number one, we should believe in the second coming because it's never been a question of whether that was the plan. So I'll dismiss the, the uh, particularly, I think, heretical view that the second coming has already occurred in the body of Christ. And the, the last time I met somebody who believed that, they also told me that the Bible was no longer relevant because we had exceeded it we'd reached a point as humanity you know what i call that just for what it's worth now this will only work for you if you're old like me and you remember the original star trek series right it was the premise of the original star trek series was that humanity would somehow reach a point of intellectual ascent that we would do away with violence and we would do away with You know, somehow humanity was gonna be so perfectly human that we would travel across the galaxy trying to teach other races how to be as awesome as we are. Now, I want you to know, I love Star Trek. I've been watching every version of it that's ever been created. But what I've noticed, by the way, is is that as much as I admire Gene Roddenberry's vision, the the reality is, is the reason that the whole franchise has lasted this long is because they embraced violence and human depravity. (laughs) And if you watch the iterations of Star Trek, it really would have fallen flat a long time ago if they would have tried to perpetuate Gene's vision because it's all about human depravity, injustice, oppression, and war. And the reason it's entertaining is because we see people trying to rise above that. And we admire that. And so it is entertaining to us, but it's also a way of sort of acknowledging that it's a constant struggle that'll never end. And, the, and it, even the new versions of Star Trek and these other sort of futuristic uh, entertainment venues always leave out the one thing that we have, and that is hope. That there is a way that all of this is going to be resolved, and that, my friends, is one of the biggest dangers that a lot of Christians have who really embrace the second coming is they're just sort of holding fast and hoping that Christ will come before they have to deal with anything really difficult, (laughs) right? How many people have thought, you know, I'm sick of COVID, Jesus, please come. How many people thought... I liked America better 50 years ago. Jesus, please come. How many people have thought, Jesus, please come because it's only going to get worse because, you know, there's nuclear weapons and there's biological weapons. And, and, and for goodness sakes, there's some really corrupt, disturbing people in charge of things. And I'm just, Jesus, come. And that is exactly the wrong reason to call him and ask him to come. Because he asks you in, in love to endure for his sake. He asks you in love to to wait for his coming. And we are told that we should consider our sufferings, Romans 8, 18 to 23, in this present time, not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjugated it, or subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Now, my sermon notes contain a number of scripture references that you'll want to know. And uh, we used to keep those in, in, on hand printed, but in, as a response to COVID, I can tell you that, that if you get on our mailing list, we email those out every Sunday morning. If you get our app and, and here's another plug for a digital way to get the app. If you want the app right now, go on your phone and in the, in the text messaging app, type 77977 and then the message Shiloh app. Shiloh app, all right? And then you'll see in there that I provided you with the notes for today that contained all these scripture references. Plus you will have received those in the email if you're on our mailing list. And we have paper copies here at the church Uh, this master copy will go in a box up in the office and if you want a copy of it, we'll make you a copy of it. So there are a lot of references here I'd like you to look at when you are doing your personal study. But the main thing I want to encourage you to take uh, take a look at is Colossians and Ephesians. I want you to read those carefully. And, you know, frankly, everything Paul wrote was different pieces of a puzzle that once you put it all together, makes sense. Here's the reason that you should not dread the second coming, but look forward to the second coming. And it's pretty amazing when you get right down to it. See, according to Paul in the uh, letter to the Ephesians, God's eternal purpose was that his, home, that his son would have a, a permanent companion. That there would be a union of the Son of God and chief creation of God, humanity. And that God would have a house to dwell in on earth. I mean, this was basic premise of Ephesians, and the idea is, is that God wants to be among us, but not only that, wants us to be in complete union with him. and to give you a really superficial expression of what I'm trying to say. A lot of you are trying to figure out how you're going to do Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks with all these COVID restrictions and part of what's troubling you is because it just doesn't feel right to sit down to a Thanksgiving meal without your whole family there. It just doesn't feel right and this is a very Western American sort of thing but the fact is is that All cultures have, and some better than Americans in my opinion, have this tremendous love for family and this desire for the family to be together in one place and it's counterintuitive for us to isolate. Well that's probably because deep within us there's this nature that groans that we just heard about. In fact, if you're a born-again believer, that's the Holy Spirit, not a hungry tummy. That is the Holy Spirit groaning from within you, crying out for your Lord to come because of love. Because what we learn in Scripture is that God's eternal purpose is that Christ would redeem his bride, pay the price. And that the marriage that the Heavenly Father has arranged could go ahead because the redemption had been taken care of and then the process of betrothal happens. Now when the Lord ascended into heaven and quickly afterwards he sent the Holy Spirit so that we are the body of Christ. We're God's presence on earth in Christ who dwells in us by the Holy Spirit and yet we're incomplete. The new covenant is a betrothal contract. You know, betrothal is just another word for an engagement. An engagement contract is something the groom arranges with the the father of the bride, and it's all the process of basically, you know, making sure the bride is in agreement, and when everybody's in agreement, then they are legally bound to each other, yet not married. And since they're not married, there's no consummation of the marriage. And so, This is the nature of the new covenant with Christ. He has redeemed us. And when we agree that we want to be in this relationship with Christ, time out now. You remember how that happens? I've heard two or three people over the last couple of weeks say that there aren't many preachers out there who preach repentance. And I chuckle when I hear that because you all have heard that word a lot, I know. So let's talk about repentance for a minute. And it's important because this is always part of what we do when we get together is to remember that there may be among us those persons who have not yet repented. And so repentance is recognizing that you've been going the wrong direction. You've been going away from God. Now, I don't know about you all, but I'm old enough to remember when we used to have to look at a thing called a map. It was a piece of paper with roads and stuff on it. And, and we figure out this is how you get where you're going. And then, you know, you get busy and do the driving because, you know, you can't really like look at the map and look at the road at the same time. And and so you just kind of have to confidently trust that you've checked the map twice and you know where you're going. Well, if you've ever had the experience, as I have, of realizing that about an hour ago you started heading south, but it felt like you should have been heading east, right? And then at some point you pull over, you get the map out and you finally figure out where you are and you realize you've been going the wrong way. So what do you do? You get up on the ramp, you go across the interstate, and you go back down, and you turn in a new direction and start heading for where you're going. That's repentance. That's repentance. Repentance is recognizing you've been going the wrong way, and it really comes down to who your God is. And more often than not, our God is our self, our flesh. It's us intentionally, intentionally, ignoring the signs that are telling us we're going in the wrong direction because we want what we're aiming at. And when we give up wanting what we desire more and actually choose God, we're ready to repent and turn in a new direction. And once we do that, then we are ready to ask God's forgiveness for our, for our disrespect and our disregard for God's loving will and then we're ready to embrace Christ and when we embrace Christ's covenant made through his shed blood broken body on the cross we've entered into the new covenant with him which is our engagement our betrothal and at that point we join all the body of Christ as his bride waiting. Not in a way that is unproductive. Because we are ready. And we're gonna talk a lot more about the weddings, the way the Bible interprets them next week, but, but we are engaged in a productive life. We care deeply about, you know, we wanna know our future companion better before we move in with him, right? You know, we wanna be more, someone told me this morning that they clicked on my picture on the web page and there was no bio. And I thought, how'd I miss that? They thought it'd be helpful to know me a little better before they got here, but they had to settle for a surprise. (laughs) Hopefully they're not too disappointed. (laughs) But, But here's the thing. We do this because it's a better way to have a great relationship with the one we're planning to spend a lot of time with. That's what engagements used to be about, right? used to be a time of getting better acquainted, meeting the families and finding out about the, the things we have in common and the dreams we have that we want to share and, and so we spend our time productively getting to know our master, the one that we're going to eventually be united with for all eternity and so it's a very productive time of waiting but, but in the tradition of, of ancient Jewish weddings There's an understanding that the time of betrothal is going to come to an end. And when the bridegroom is ready, after he's prepared a place for you in his father's house, he's coming for you. Now don't think of this in terms of literal maleness and femaleness and don't think of it in terms of human sexuality. Just understand that the message of scripture is that we were made for this. And the second coming is the fulfillment of what we were made for. So it's anything but something to dread. It's something to be enthralled about, to look forward to the day when he comes. And so what we understand is is that there are signs and signals and reminders that he is coming is near. And that's good because we need to make sure we have all of our affairs in order. That is our spiritual affairs. All those things that are going to be vitally important to our relationship with the one to whom we're gonna spend eternity. Because at some point we're going to be at one with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because the bridegroom comes, takes the bride back to the Father's house. There's a big party. There's a consummation. And then there's an even bigger party. And the consummation hasn't happened yet. We're betrothed. We're under contract. and We have a covenant with the bridegroom and we are to to act like we're already connected at part of the bridegroom while we wait for the coming and the wedding and the consummation there's an author I really love who's become a friend recently who said the spirit the Holy Spirit is the bond of love that flows like liquid passion within the communion of the triune God isn't that beautiful? The liquid passion of God is the Holy Spirit and as Christian believers, we've received that same Holy Spirit, basically had a transfusion of our humanity from the flesh to the image of our Heavenly Father's Son, Lord Jesus Christ. And the consummation puts us permanently in that flow to where we are one with the Father and the Son through the liquid passion. Of the Triune Communion. Isn't that beautiful? So, if you were looking for a doom and gloom and kind of scary movie version of the coming of the Antichrist and all of that, um, that would be somebody else's business. And Christians, I think, get duped all the time into spending more time focusing on the wrath of God poured out on unbelievers, on people outside the covenant. We're not, there's no need for us to focus on that. Our focus is on our coming bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to blow his shofar, and he and those who are with him are going to come down the street singing and dancing and calling your name. And you are going to be ready because you've been waiting for this all your Christian life. Let us pray. I thank you, God, for your word, and I pray that all that is true and from you would remain in the hearts of your people, that whatever is inaccurate, tainted by sin, might be blown away. And it is all for your name's sake, we pray. Amen.